All right. Welcome to the wildlife experience. Uh, in this episode, I speak to uh, one of the most passionate waterfowl hunters uh, I've ever I've ever seen. Uh, his name is Ramsey Russell. Uh, Ramsey is uh, from Mississippi. Um, and he runs a, a business where he takes people around the world uh, and, and to duck hunt. Um, it's basically like a travel business for duck hunting. Um, you know, going hunting in places like uh, Australia, Argentina, Pakistan, Mongolia, uh, South Africa, uh, the Netherlands, and just uh, really, really a cool, cool way to experience the outdoors and, and all the amazing biodiversity around the world. Um, and just, uh, I, I discovered Mr. Ramsey on YouTube. Um, he, he runs a YouTube page and um, where he videos some of these hunts in Australia and Argentina and, you know, talking about all the different duck species that he's harvested and, and he does little educational bits about different, the different species where he's just talking about like a white cheek pintail or, um, you know, a red shoveler or you know, whatever down in Argentina or elsewhere. And, um, just really, really, uh, just an interesting, really interesting hunter. Um, uh, he does have a, a background in wildlife biology. He's, his, he started his career. So we'll cover some of that. Um, he's going to tell us a few stories. Um, he told a few stories um, about uh, his time um, traveling around and, and, and exploring these different wetland systems and, the, and these different hunting cultures. Um, all around it, really uh, interesting talk. Um, cover some wildlife and habitat management stuff. Uh, the, the role of hunters uh, in conservation. Uh, a little bit about trophy hunting. Um, what else we got here? Uh, you know, consumptive use versus non-consumptive use of wildlife. You know, birders versus you know, you know, hunters. Um, uh, all sorts of different stuff. And and Mister, we weren't able to talk as long as I was hoping, but uh, Mister Ramsey's uh, got a lot of interesting perspectives. And uh, as someone that's you know, um, you know, been around for a little while and traveled all over the place and experienced different cultures. And, um, so I think it's, uh, I think you'll find that, um, he has some very interesting things to say and some very valuable things to say, uh, about, about wildlife conservation and, and, um, you know, uh, and, and ducks in particular. And, uh, so I will end it with that. And now I bring you Mr. Ramsey Russell. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. Uh, so yeah, man, I was, uh, I was looking at YouTube. Uh, I've taken an interest to Australia lately, all sorts of amazing wildlife. And I just stumbled upon some, some Australian duck hunting videos. And, and that's when I discovered your stuff and, and I felt really inspired by kind of how you do things. So, uh, it's great to have you here. Yeah. Well, I'm good to be here. You know, we're a, we're a travel company more or less for duck hunters. Yep. Is what we do. Yep. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're just, you're, you're clearly super passionate about wetlands and waterfowl, you know, and, and, uh, traveling around and, and experiencing different cultures and, and it's uh, all real, real neat to watch, you know? Yeah. I appreciate that. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, I guess, uh, I'm already recording. Usually I do a little intro before, but, uh, we can just go from here. Um, we can just start out, you know, uh, talking about kind of how you got into, 
into waterfowl hunting or, or the outdoors in general and uh, kind of just learn a little bit about you uh, to, to start out. Sure. Well, I mean, I got in, I got into, uh, I went on a really, really, really bad duck hunt, uh, 20 something years ago, booked through with the foremost booking agency at the time. It was terrible. Started off with a inebriated, uh, Native American up in Canada as a guide and kind of ended similarly, but, uh, got into this business, uh, by just doing due diligence and finding outfitters and realizing there was a better way to help hunters find good hunts worldwide yep. and uh left i was a biologist i was a forester left a federal government career to pursue it uh, and that's been about 15 years ago uh we've been in business uh we've been in business next year will be our 20th year in business i started duck hunting i'm from born and raised in mississippi i started duck hunting just like everybody else in the deep south does you go out with your family when you're a little boy yep very good yeah uh yeah i, I when I was watching your videos, uh, you really talked like a biologist and, 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 but I didn't realize you were a biologist until I was watching a lot of your episodes on, on your podcast this week. Um, when I, when I learned you actually do have a bi biology background. Um, so it wasn't no surprise there. <laughs> I like to think that one, you know, I like to think I used to be a biologist. I, I am a biologist. It's the only training I've got is forestry and, uh, uh, wildlife management, but, uh, I haven't really practiced it outside of what I do now. Just, you know, I, I like to think it helps me when I go into habitats, when I go into different situations, just kind of examine and look and explore and, and, uh, gain an informed opinion on it. But I, I meet on my podcast up to even somewhere we meet with a lot of real biologists that have been practicing for 20 and 30 years. Yeah. And, and I certainly uh, defer to what they have to say or their up to date science, you know, uh, before I try to report on something myself. Yeah. So you, uh, you I guess you went to Mississippi State University? I did. I went to Mississippi State University uh, way back when. Got an undergraduate and a master's degree. What did you do for your uh, for your master's work? Uh, gosh, let me think of the name of that title. Basically, my, my thesis was in forestry. Um, you know, I got an undergraduate in wildlife management, which at the time at Mississippi State University was forestry with a wildlife option. And uh, by the time I got into grad school, I realized that if I were going to practice wildlife management in the Southeast, it's all about the habitat, which bottomland hardwoods, you know, timber. And, uh, and, and fell off into a program as a research associate at Mississippi State University, working for one of the foremost bottomland hardwood silviculturalists. And uh, wrote my thesis on uh, different bottomland hardwood restoration methods, hand planting versus machine, different cultural practice for establishing hardwoods in former agricultural lands, which just parlayed right into a federal government position here in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, I took a job with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service right out of college, worked there for three years before transferring over to U.S. Department of Agriculture, but uh, in the three years I was there, we planted, uh, I was involved with about 60,000 acres bottomland hardwood restoration in the southeastern U.S. Wow. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'll just back up a little bit. You know, a lot of people uh, talk about habitat. A lot of people, they want to study wildlife, you know, because they want to work with animals. But then, you know, you realize once you get into school, 
when you're talking about conserving wildlife resources, it's all about the habitat, really. It's all, it's all about the habitat. Yeah. Habitat is everything. You know, it's like uh, meeting with some biologists recently in our own podcast. The only thing that waterfowl managers, Fish and Wildlife Service or whomever can, can really control is harvest. But hunter harvest doesn't really affect waterfowl populations you know they they've learned that uh, up in canada for example last dry cycle when the bird counts were down you know they they cut back on you know the bag limits of pintails or mallards and what they realized is it didn't the population didn't respond until it got wet again and there was sufficient habitat for those populations to to respond to yeah. And, uh, but, you know, we have bag limits because it is conservation and because that is something we can control and try to try to control, but, but it's all about the habitat, habitat quality, uh, the abundance of habitat. When you're talking about waterfowl, you know, they, they've got a, uh, a life cycle requirement here in North America. It is continental primarily, and, and you've got to have all those factors in place to have ideal populations of waterfowl. And it's quite a, to, to conserve waterfowl across the landscape, it's, it's quite an ordeal because of their, because they migrate, you know, they spend their, their breeding season up in Canada and then they're migrating down some of them all the way into, I guess, central and South America. Yeah. Some of them will go, go, go far South and, uh, and, and way up into the Arctic circle, you know, a lot of them breed up in the Arctic and, uh, I've always been fascinated by the migration of waterfowl. It, it's very interesting to me where these birds are going, when these birds are going there. Um, you know, they've got wings, there's no fence in the sky. They'll, they'll bounce if it's dry in one area or, um, something they'll, they'll fly and find, exploit more food resources to the best of their ability. Yep. And I, I guess, uh, I guess when you were young, you know, I, I kind of, I started duck hunting when I was, I guess, like a teenager and kind of just do it. Cause it's, uh, you know, it's kind of traditional. I'm from Southeast Texas. Uh, around uh, Jefferson County, uh, I, I know you've you've been to Chambers County at least. Oh yeah, I've been uh, I've been to a lot of places in Texas. Yeah, I guess you've been really all over. So when I was listening to some of your episodes uh, talking about Chambers County, I wasn't too surprised. But you know, growing up, you know, when you first started duck hunting, it was really just you know it was the going out with your buddies, and I mean it was a great experience. But as I've gotten a little older and, and learned more about natural history of, of waterfowl and ecology it's uh, become much more immersive to me because there's so much that goes into with, with waterfowl, you know, there's, um, yeah, but I started off like everybody else. I just wanted to shoot ducks, yeah. you know, a lot of ducks and, and, uh, went through that phase and we all do when we're young, but as you get older, you know, you, it, it begins to transform becomes, you know, but, but let me say this, you know, to me, uh, duck hunting is, is, is comprised of people, duck hunters. And cultures are comprised of people. Duck hunting is a culture. And that's what become to fascinate me worldwide is how uh, throughout the United States, from Texas to Wisconsin to California, Idaho, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Delaware, Connecticut, uh, which I leave for in the morning, you know, it, it, it's Azerbaijan, New Zealand, worldwide, it, it's it's duck hunters is, is like this universal truth we are all duck hunters and um 
and it, it never ceases to amaze me, you know, uh, to be in a foreign country like Azerbaijan and P rowing out through the marsh and Google translators of no assistance trying to trying to translate a conversation, you know, uh, one word sentences maybe, but but you don't need to speak that language because you're in a duck boat with a fellow duck hunter and just a few hand signals and subtleties and you can communicate, you know, you can get to where you're going 30 minutes in the marsh and put out the decoys and get them just like you want them and get hidden just right. And you learn very quickly what, you know, what the game is, you know, and, it, and it's, uh, I find a lot of satisfaction in that, you know, one of my favorite stories about a small world is among duck hunters was being in Pakistan of all places, Pakistan. When you think of Pakistan, you think of, mountainous habitat like you see on television for Afghanistan and a lot of the margins uh out of perimeters of Pakistan are but running right through the middle of the country is the Indus River Valley which is still very wet and fertile look at look it up on uh Google Earth and uh we were hunting in this river valley hunting in some private properties with a feudal lord uh one of the very best duck hunts and some of the most superior hospitality I've ever been uh subject to but we were sitting uh, around a campfire in Pakistan telling stories and uh, a lot of them could speak English. And I'm sitting there wide eyed with wonder because they're all talking uncle Sai stories. Oh, you know, wow. they, they've got the big satellites outside their houses too. You know, speaking of which one time up in Mongolia, Mongolia is a massively rural country. There it's, it's, Oh, gosh, I don't, I don't know how big it is relative to the United States. I'd say it's half as big as the United States with a population of 3 million, most of which live in Ulaanbaatar, the main city. And then you get out, you know, there's no barbed wire fence. There's 33 million head of livestock. There's no barbed wire fence. There's no fence at all because they do a very nomadic grazing lifestyle still. And they live in them little round uh, gurs. Uh, the Russians call them yurts, but they call them gurs. And uh, same as Genghis Khan, you know, these little round felt wall structures. But then you'll be out in the middle of absolute nowhere where they, they still tether their horses out in front of these their houses. And yet there's a satellite. And I've always wondered, you know, what must it be like sitting in this part of the world when it's minus 50 in January, seeing the rest of the world, how the rest of the world lives in homes and houses and buildings and apartments and automobiles and warm beaches and palm trees what 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 must it be to view the world from a girl yeah. in my 50 but you got that satellite and it, it kind of brings us all the world together you know? and, and you said you were duck hunting out there in mongolia no i yeah everywhere we go we duck hunt i mean that's that's what compels me i started off like i said chasing ducks numbers and then i just realized you know well if i go over here i can shoot something else and you know, 20, 30 years ago, realized, well, golly, you know, uh, there, there's 50 some odd subspecies, almost 60 subspecies of waterfowl in North America. And, you know, Canada goose on the one hand, a Canada goose is a Canada goose. On the other hand, there's seven subspecies of Canada geese now and, and hunting Vancouver and duskies and uh, westers and greater basins. They're all subtly different. You know, and, and hunting cackling geese, uh, the little Richardsons and Hutchinsons down in the Panhandle of Texas is much different than hunting big Canada geese. And, um, and, and you know, so I started kind of chasing those species, but, and I've got a, a collection of birds. Don't get me wrong. It's a, I got two dead gum mini stuffed birds sitting there collecting dust, but, but it just dawned on me one time, 
is I'd sit there in my recliner and look at them, or as somebody came in and would point to a red-crested poacher or a bar-headed goose or something else, and I started telling the story about the hunt or about that species, it always somehow involved people, you know, and the culture and the place and the food, you know, the whole drama of that particular hunt. And that's what really, that's when I realized that I really wasn't collecting birds. I was collecting experiences. I'm an experienced junkie. You know, I, I grew up reading as a child, National Geographic before they went on their big liberal bend like the rest of the world. But back in, back in the day that I was just a small Mississippi kid going through the colorful pages of National Geographic magazine, looking at the food and the culture and the clothing and, and the people and the places. <coughs> and, you know, it's no small wonder that now I've crafted a, a business and make my living and, and have created a life around walking through those pages with a shotgun and waders. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it, it's uh, asked recently, you know, what's your favorite duck? Well, tongue in cheek, the next one that flies over the decoys, but, <laughs> but truthfully, you know, I, I do like mallard ducks a lot. And, and it's funny how you shoot mallard duck throughout the entire Northern hemisphere. Uh, everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, just about. I've, I've shot them in Russia, uh, 20 kilometers from the Arctic Circle. I've shot them throughout Canada, throughout the United States. Uh, go, go to the driest state in the country, uh, Nevada, and there's mallards. Go, go to California, there's mallards. Go to Delaware, there's mallards. Go, go to Mississippi, cut your teeth on mallards, Arkansas, Wisconsin. It, that's what drives the whole duck machine. Yep. But there's a lot of cool species beyond just a mallard duck, you know? And, and yep. as you get off into the into 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 the other parts of the world and you're chasing red crested poachers one of my, that was one of my big unicorn species it's a uh it's in a little genus uh same genus as rosy bill poachers and southern poachers down in africa and they all behave and use similar habitats for kind of a false diver uh the red crested poachers got this big beautiful orange head and uh and they don't play by mallard rules you know, you, you, you've got to hunt them on their terms, which is a little bit different. Yes, they use decoy, but they use different habitats, different calling than a mallard. Uh, even the way they decoy a lot of times, just like a diver, you know, you, you get more response, better response with a different looking spread uh, and understanding the way those birds come in. But then you go off into some areas like uh, Mongolia. We were there to hunt primarily bar-headed geese. Uh, it, it, that hunt takes place in April. The birds are breeding. You're, you're, you're hunting breeding pairs of these birds. There's no flocks. They're breeding pairs. Yep. And when you get off, no differently than mallards, if you were to try to hunt mallards in March, good luck. Because uh, that, that breeding male and female want nothing whatsoever to do with a crowd of birds. They're going off by themselves and, and courting and doing their things. You know, they're, they're, that part of their life history at that time of year. And so you have to you have to deploy different hunting methods when you hunt those. When we go to South Africa, Cape shell ducks uh, by special permit because that bird's very unique. We're hunting in the peak of winter, yet they're breeding, they're nesting, and uh, so we don't just go and, and shoot them willy nilly. You know, yeah. if they you know we we limit all the clients and the guests to just a pair. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Try to shoot the pair. <clears throat> Because you know we're hunters, we want there to be more birds, but, oh, yeah, but you're, sure. you're not typically going to decoy uh, those breeding pairs uh, like you will the yellow-billed uh, 
ducks or uh, the other species, you're, they're not going to decoy. You, you, a lot of times you're going to have to spot and stalk them or sneak them or something like that. And that's, that's just kind of crazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the talking about the experiences. You know, my main motivation to start this podcast is, is uh, I guess I kind of, I kind of occupy different, different wildlife realms. I, I hang out with a lot of birders, you know, but hang out with a lot of people that like reptiles and amphibians. I'm kind of have a pretty broad interest. Um, kind of my core roots in the outdoors were, were hunting and fishing. And one thing I've noticed, you know, as I've, as I've grown older and hanging out with all these different types of people is, um, there's not as much, uh, unity among all these different wildlife groups. And, and, and a lot of, they think a lot of people think they're so much different, you know, a birder from a waterfowl hunter is so much different, but that's not truly the case. Um, you know, we, it's all about the experience getting out into these different ecosystems and, and, uh, you know, getting to enjoy all these different wildlife species. So yeah, when, when I was watching all your YouTube videos and listening to your podcast, it's just really cool to see, uh, see, see you going around and, and, uh, going out to experience these different wetlands around the world with all these, all these different waterfowl species, you know, and it's, uh, it's kind of the, the primary reason why I really wanted to talk to you was to really explore all that. Cause it's really neat. You know, there's not a lot of waterfowl hunters doing it like you're doing it. The big distinction between birders and duck hunters, if you classify them into two groups, is one is a consumptive use and one of them is a non-consumptive use. And uh, you know, I, I I hate to paint with a broad brush, yeah, you know, but but it 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 is a it is a it is a distinction between hunting and killing versus just watching. Yeah. But I think that the, your better hunters are also observers and, and wildlife appreciators. I mean, you know, uh I'm I'm not the birder I used to be when I was in college. I knew all those scientific names and all those birds and all those things. But but I will say this: that even though I'm not a, a an active birder, I do get to see a lot of cool stuff. You know, you go out from these foreign countries, you don't see just the waterfowl. Uh, when you get out from the different habitats, you do see other wildlife. And one of the most indispensable pieces of equipment that I carry worldwide is a pair of binoculars. You know, uh, I, was, I was a young wildlife biologist down on the Mexico border working for a, on a big, massive trophy deer ranch. I wanted to be, when I went to college, I wanted to be a white-tailed deer biologist. And I wanted to be the next Dr. Deer, somebody coming up. <laughs> and uh, went down to this this vast South Texas ranch and shot antlerless deer. And, and what, county, what county was it? Uh, well, Demet LaSalle, Webb, Atascosa. Okay several of those counties down there on, with a series of ranches, but uh, bobwhite quail, morning doves were everywhere. And uh, when the wind blew out of the north, starting in November, you know, the stock tank would have ducks in it. And I kind of started falling back into it. Deer were kind of a job description. And I just, you know, I grew up, cut my teeth in bird hunting. My grandfather was a duck hunter. And it just, I don't know, I fell all in love again with the birds. And, uh, and, and, that that's kind of where but and still I, I didn't go and practice that but but you know it uh it, it set me on a path of, of duck hunting uh, that's funny how you just go down there to, on that remote ranch uh, to do that but but even even uh even there you know it wasn't just the whitetail or, or the uh or the ducks or the quail or the doves it was it was the other wildlife too you you were immersed in it and my 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 the, the senior biologist down there that hired me for that co-op position 
he told us kids one time the two most uh, two main tools we would use as wildlife biologists were a ballpoint pen and a pair of binoculars. And all these years later, I can say, you know, he's right. I mean, oh, I've, if I'm hunting, I've got my shotgun and my waders and my shotgun shells, but I've always got a ballpoint pen uh, and I've always got a pair of binoculars. And, and my advice to young people, um, yeah, I was making $500 a month living on beans and rice and uh, deer meat. And I went out and bought me a thousand fifteen hundred dollar pair of binoculars that really and truly lasted me for thirty years. I still got them, yeah. And uh, they're still great binoculars. But I did up up update uh, back about three years ago and bought me a new pair because they have they have progressed a lot in the last thirty years. I'd I'd say buy the very best binoculars that you can possibly manage to get. Yeah. Uh, they'll last you forever if taken care of. And, and they are, you know, when we're out stalking, when we're glassing, when we're scouting, when we're looking, when we're laying out game plans, it, it's just, uh, oh, what kind of bird is that? Or what is that I'm seeing? You know, I, I, I use binoculars all the time. I love to see them, love to look at them. A lot of times I see birds, I have no idea what they are, but I'm watching them, you know, in the cattails or the reeds or crawling through the trees. And you go, you go into some of these countries, uh, I see a lot of birds and, and uh, I don't know what they are, but I'm watching, you know. <sighs> so you, uh, yeah, I guess we get back to the, this, this international hunting you do is so fascinating to me. Uh, there's one, you were in a, was it a red gum sort of timber hole in Australia? Is that right? Yeah, that's down in Australia. You know, Man, that was, that was super cool looking that, that habitat and, and the, the way the ducks come in there. And then that was, that was fun to watch on YouTube. If you want to talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, the world's a whole lot bigger than our backyard. I started off as a very young guy in college and a friend of a friend, uh, did some snow goose hunting down in Texas. The limit was five. It was the mid nineties. And I went, I'd never shot snow geese before. It's crazy how 30 years later, the whole Mississippi Delta just eat up with them, uh, in the, in the, in the fall and winter. But, but at the time it wasn't, they were all flying down to coastal Texas. And uh, I went down there and hunted. It, it just dawned on me down around Katy. It just dawned on me that there, there was a lot, the world's a lot bigger than my backyard. It, it was duck season somewhere else than, than just Mississippi and Arkansas. And, and as I got into college, I, I wanted to go shoot migrator Canada geese, especially the littles and ended up in Canada uh, on that bad hunt, which found some good hunts. It led to get ducks.com and, and, uh, you know, once you kind of start exploring the United States, the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, man, we, we've, we've been to a lot of really cool places um, around the world, places you wouldn't dream, Pakistan, Mongolia, Australia, uh, places you just wouldn't dream have waterfowl. Peru, you know, one of the coolest hunts in the world is we go to Peru and uh, down along the coastal marsh areas, um, along the Atacama Desert, between the Atacama Desert and Pacific Ocean, it's some of the greatest density of cinnamon teal and white cheek pintail you, you'll ever experience. Wow, that, those, those white cheek pintail are, are, are beautiful birds. <laughs> They're gorgeous birds. But then as you go up into the mountains from there, oh, and it's an all-day drive. You know, you, you leave as soon as it's daylight, and you're climbing up little mountain roads and going through little villages uh 
some locals are sit, squatted down on the side of the road, skinning out a llama, you know, for dinner and uh, through wool farms and just up the mountain you go and you finally get up there around 15, 16,000 feet. You start seeing rivers full of torrent ducks. They used to be huntable. Now they're not, but they're fun to watch. I took Jake Latondras down there back in August and we filmed this hunt. Uh, I've done it many times. But I wanted to film it. I wanted to show the world similar to that Australia film you saw, but uh, we, we, but once you get up there, you're just imagine this, man, you're up, you're up in this, this huge Alta Plano, the largest in the world. And uh, uh, well above 10,000 feet, you're, we're hunting around 14 to 16,000 feet. Altitude doesn't bother me for some reason, but it does some people. You gotta, you gotta pay attention to it. But, uh, and we're hunting uh, geese, uh, Andean geese or punitil or uh, uh, crested ducks, which you're not going to find anywhere else. And again, yeah. spot and stalk. You know, just bam, bam, I get me a pair of geese. Bam, I get me a crested duck. Bam, bam, I shoot a pair of punitil. And then back down the mountain we go. And, and I've now got species that, and, and I've experienced something high up in the Andes Mountains, uh, something I'll never experience elsewhere. And, uh, you know, the internet makes the world a, a kind of a small place. People ask, you know, where do you find these hunts? Well, a lot of times these hunts find me, Andrew. It, it's, uh, we've been doing this for 20 years. And, uh I was approached by some people in Australia years ago and, uh, and went and had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. I, I just, you know, Australia, they got that funny crocodile Dundee accent, but uh, very, very similar culture. Uh, they're English speaking. They, they approach duck hunting a lot like we do uh, with the decoys and the calls. And, and I hunted with some boys from Australia up here and, and then, we got to talking and I went down to Australia to meet with them and loved it. You know, we did hunt in flooded timber and those Pacific black ducks are working into the timber, just like mallards and around Stuttgart. I mean, they're coming into the timber and you're calling them and, and chuckling to them and, and getting them to work and set up. And, uh, they've, they've got about, Oh, I don't know, eight or nine species of birds down there. Gray teal and uh, chestnut teal. And they all use different habitats. They got a hard head bird. They got a really cool little bird called a, um, um, Oh gosh. Uh, one of my favorite little birds in the world. And, the pink, and pink there's, is there the pink ear? Pink ear the pink ear. That's a cool you know, one right there. A really cool little bird. Yeah. And, and, and uh, it's own genus too. I think, I don't think it's related to much anything else. And, and then, of course, there's the uh, the mountain shell duck, and there's what they call a wood duck or a maned duck. So you go down and you experience all these cool species, and and, and you bring your game with you. You bring your till call. You bring your mallard call. You bring your shotgun. We use air shotguns. You can't import shotguns into Australia and uh, very easily. And so you, you just go down and have this great time, and, it, and it's just it's amazing how you're so far away from home and – and you'll be walking through a, a wetland and, well, you know, this plant looks like that. Well, it is. It's in the same genus. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the way the birds utilize the habitats and it's all just very, very similar. You know, I remember walking into the woods one day of flooded timber. And if you, you know, I've walked through some flooded timber in the south where you bust out a herd of white-tailed deer that'll retreat to the swamp to hide. Only down there, it was kangaroo. I heard this herd of deer get up, explode through the woods. And I looked to my left, and it was a herd of kangaroos busting through the woods. And that, that'll that wake you up quick, you know. Yeah, uh, you can see so, that. It's like a, just like another planet, you know. It's so, so different, but yet the same in many ways. 
it's another planet, you know, and, and I tell you, <clears throat> going to Netherlands uh, was very interesting. Going to Australia was very interesting because it really awakened me to the non, the anti-hunting push around the world. Um, I, I predict that in those duck hunters and hunters in general down in Australia are fighting the fight, man. They're fighting tooth and nail, but I, I predict that in another decade, hunting will cease to exist in Australia and let sort of a miracle. Uh, the anti-hunters don't care. Yeah, that, that's a, another part of my motivation to, to starting this podcast is, you know, I'm, a, I'm passionate about, about wildlife and, and conserving wildlife, and, and I love natural history, and, and wildlife is really my whole life, you know. Uh, but, and, and, but there's a huge disconnect that the people think that hunting is bad, you know, that it's all like unregulated, like we used to have the unregulated market hunts, but those are distinctly different than what, what we're doing now, you know, under managed, managed wildlife systems. You're never going to convince them otherwise. My, my personal opinion is that anti-hunters are a very unhappy people. I think they're self-loathing, the ones I've had personal dealings with. I think that if you, in the instance of Australia, a lot of the same protesters that you see out at the boat ramps opening weekend, two weeks later, uh, after they come down from whatever high they're on, in between, they're, they're protesting, they're just protesting people. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, I, was, I got in a real fray with anti-hunters down in Netherlands years ago as we started going there. Uh, we had some articles written in, in sporting literature, never knowing that anti-hunters are completely unaware that they would read it, become aware of it. But boy, they did. And, and my name personally, Ramsey Russell, my company, Get Ducks, Ramsey Russell, Get Ducks. Well, then all the local papers, all the national papers, all the local television stations, all the, this, this, this total sensation, this just this sensational, um, much ado about nothing, um, was sweeping it and it finally hit the parliament floor my my outfitter contact over there we removed it off our web page we still sell the hunt but we had to remove it off our web page because literally they have two anti the uh, what they call the animal party it, it literally had two or three parliament seats and they brought it to the parliament floor and ramsey russell get ducks.com uh, was literally cited on the parliament floor in Netherlands when they proposed a cessation to all commercial hunting activities. See, they banned hunting, goose hunting in Netherlands about 15 years ago. And short, you know, you're looking at a very, very good uh, pasture and cropland environment with a lot of water and, uh, and unhunted geese did what they, they, began to take up residency, migratory population, the birds ceased migrating and began to establish resident populations. And in the absence of hunting, they did what, what resident geese do. They exploded through the roof. Yep. Um, and it's one of the biggest kept secrets over there is that when the lot of those geese are flightless, the government goes out and rounds them up by the hundreds of thousands and center and, and gases them, puts them in little uh, carbon monoxide chambers and then incinerates them. Well, you know, they taught me in wildlife management that conservation, not preservation, conservation is wise use. Again, think of forestry. 
it's sustained yield, sustained, sustained harvest, you know, based uh, on science, based on good science, based on good yeah. science, you know, because it is a renewable resource. And, yeah. you know, my question, I find, I talked to somebody over there one time, uh, and I'll tell you something that really disappointed me. They've got a, uh, the Dutch hunting association over there. I had reached out to them preceding going over there with clients and setting up this hunt and gotten some information from them on transportation laws and import export and some different stuff. They were very helpful at the time, but the minute it got political, they turned on me and, and they were very critical of the word trophy, trophy hunting. Trophy is evil. I said, no, it's not. I mean, we, we consume the meat. Uh, we, we, and, and then we put a lot of the feathers and stuff to use also in taxidermy. And, uh, but they, they, they became very critical. They, they folded to the anti-hunting and I, and I very candidly told them, you know, the problem with, with, with in Holland is that even the leadership such as yourself it is placating the anti-hunters. But those anti-hunters don't care. Uh, really and truly, my take on it is they they only, if you're going to placate them, if you're going to make an anti-hunter happy, you're using the bird, putting money into conservation. That's not what's going to make anti-hunters happy. The only thing that's going to make them happy is for you to quit killing those birds yep. and uh, or killing that wildlife. And, and you know, the, the hunting community, a lot of game animals uh, from uh, freaking the swans. Uh, we, we just had a, a guest on our own podcast, Duck Season Somewhere, recorded one of the biologists out in Nevada who was telling us about the trumpeter swans. You know, they were down to 60 pair. Uh, the Yellowstone population was down to 60 pair. Well, now they're burgeoning. Now their population is very stable, doing very good because of hunter interest and wildlife management. Yep. You know, and, and, and uh, we hunters are not only footing the bill for game management through our excise taxes, through our hunting license sales, through the stamps and, and things of that Pitt nature. Pittman Robertson Act made a big difference in all that. Those excise taxes. But yeah. but beyond all that, now we're going to Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, National Wild Turkey Federation, yeah. Safari Club International, Delta Safari Club. We're going to all these and we're, we're, we're digging into our pocket and putting more money into pro hunting and pro conservation. And then we go to our properties. <clears throat> and we plant crops and manage habitat and pump water for, for all this stuff. I mean, we, and, and, and if you start looking at the state budgets through license sales, you realize very quickly that what's got every state in the country freaking out about, a, about hunters going away is that not only are, is game management being funded via the hunter dollars, but non-game management songbirds butterflies pollinators all of the clean water uh, all of this stuff is coming out of the hunters pockets these bird hunters and uh, bird watchers or anti-hunters or non-hunters aren't putting anything into conservation nothing yeah you know That's they're, the they're not what we hunters are the difference in it you know and, and i'm not being critical because a lot of my uh close friends and associates are avid birders yeah. Uh, and they're duck hunters too. But, but when I think of uh, the stereotypical snobbish bird watcher that disdains my going out and killing something, you know, the difference in that kind of person versus a duck hunter is a, a birder is happy to go out and see a pair of prothonotary warblers and go check, check and check it off his bag. If, if promonotary, Terry Warbler, for example, were waterfowl. We duck hunters would want to see so many of them that they obliterated the sun when they flew 
and 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 so we could shoot a few of them. Yeah. That's the difference. We yeah. we hunters want lot. We want an abundance of wildlife. Yeah. You know, and uh, versus non-hunters, you know, and and when you start getting really deep into the bushes on rhinos, elephants, some of these real those uh, are, those those inside a lot of emotion, a lot of emotion. Lot of these, what I call animal cracker species. Yeah. Let's take elephant for example. Elephants at one time were you were able to hunt them back in Kenya and uh, that was, and they, they stopped hunting in Kenya for elephants in the 1970s. And there are now 4% the number of elephants on the landscape that there were back then. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. Hunters are killing them all. No, no, they're not. What, what, what happened is um, when that, that was a, a valuable resource, a, a commodity for that local population. A hunter come over and spend whatever, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 to shoot elephants. It was a commodity yep. that sustained those communities. And once hunting was banned, there was zero commodity value in that wildlife. Now you're looking at just a big animal that, 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 that eats watermelon patches and eats corn and destroys habitat. And there's just not room for, for an animal that, that's all, all taken, no gift. Uh, and right now in Zulu land down in Africa, we've had this conversation on a recent podcast uh, down in South Africa. But uh, in Zulu land, one of the areas we passed through to go duck hunting down there got the highest or had the highest density of leopards in South Africa. Uh, again, you know, the local villager may not benefit from directly from that leopard, but the hunter comes over, spends twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to shoot that leopard. That money ends up in his community. It, fe- it, it feeds his children. It puts his kids in school. It brings potable water into their community. It's all generatable. So, so if that leopard just happened to eat a, ca- a calf or two or a goat or two, that was that was you know that was okay because that was that was his uh, what he was willing to give up for that money. For, for, for to help his community well in the absence of hunting for leopards in zulu land now it's just a calf killer there's no value to the community so they're killed indiscriminately and left to rot in the bushes yep. that that's not that is not conservation that is not sustained use anti-hunters that, that are living in the cities are content just like you and i are content to know there's stars in the sky We're, it makes us happy to know that the, the sky is full of stars. Well, they're happy just to know that those elephants aren't being killed. Well, they are being killed, but they're not being used by hunters. There, yeah. There's no, there's no industry. There's no, there's no uh, commodity value. There's no, there's no business going around them anymore. So why need, why, why do you want out, out of the, now they're out of sight, out of mind yeah. to be exploited and, and, Coached by other hunters, we did a we made a, did a really good. Uh, I met a guy down in Africa this year that was a retired green wasp, which was like the elite special force of wildlife or environmental law enforcement down there. And we did a great podcast with him about how that all works and the yep. importance of hunters. And you know, the outfitters in the communities once they know that that there's a, there's this commodity value around this resource, they they rally to protect it. But once there's no economy around that resource, then it's just, it's just in the way Yeah, that that's, you know, the same thing could be said about ducks and white-tailed deer and bison and anything else over here in America. Yeah. 
conservation is very complicated. You know, it's, uh, it's not black and white, you know, and a lot of people think it is. Um, and, and it's all about incentives. You know, it, if you don't, there's no, I've worked a lot with, uh, crocodilians. Most of my experience, actually, my, in my career has been with, with, uh, working with alligators and crocodiles and uh, all the croc professionals I've ever met, you know, that are involved with the IUCN and the, and the croc specialist group, you know, they, they are very welcoming of, uh, you know, alligator farming and ranching in these, in these third world countries and, and, and allowing these, these people to, to make money off the crocodiles in a sustainable way. That way it gives them a reason to keep the crocodiles around. Cause otherwise, I mean, they just have a massive man eater roaming around and why would, why would they want that around if there wasn't some sort of, you know, incentive to keep it there, you know, so that's right. That, that's right. You know, and it, it, it's just, you know, it's very hard for, I guess for nine hundred to understand that, you know, I, I, I just, the ones I've met, I never forget one time in Amsterdam, we had shot some mute swans. Uh, swans are another very uh, socio inflammatory type species. Um, politics, biopolitics get into it, but over in the Netherlands, man, those swans, we had, we had gone out, they were shot under depredation permit. Uh, you cannot use decoys, but you have to go flag your field to warn the geese off. You flag them with big white flags. That doesn't seem to spook swans. A hunter would know that. So we go lay the ditch and we wait on these big mute swans. And, and to get that permit, the government comes out and inspects the field and certifies that there is depredation. Well, buddy, you got a lot of swans and a lot of ducks and a lot of geese hitting hit the farm if it's, if it's cutting into your uh crop yield that you're going to feed your dairy farm dairy cows with right so we went out and we shot about a dozen of these meat farms and uh had laid them out behind a barn to take a picture and up called come this little lady and she and the outfitter kind of having some heated words she pushes past him and sees all these swans and i just i don't know what she said but i know what she said she was speaking dutch but you know she, would, she had some very unpleasant things to say in Dutch. I could just tell by her demeanor. And the outfitter came back around and he pointed over my shoulder to the local farm and said something. She just kind of shrugged it off and sensed her coat and walked quietly back to her car and got in and drove off. And I said, how in the world did you diffuse that? He goes, I told her, I said, I pointed to the farmer's house and said, if you don't want us shooting, his, shooting the swans, then go pay him for his crop loss, go, go write him a check. And he won't need us to keep the swans out of his field. Well, the typical usual anti-hunter is not willing to do that. It's okay for the rest of society, for the farmers or for the, lo the local African communities, it's okay for them to do without. But they're not willing to get in their pocket like a hunter and, and help things out. So that, that's what drives me so mad about it. So really and truly, I don't, I don't get into, uh, I refuse to get into a debate or a conversation. In fact, in Australia, I have reached out through uh, my contacts over there, through, through the uh, Field and Game Australia and through other, other avenues, and reached out to anti-hunting ringleaders to come onto my podcast. They absolutely refuse to. Yeah. You just you know, you wanted to sit down and have a, an honest and, and nuanced conversation, and they were. That's all I want to do. I want to know where they're coming from. They they probably don't know. They probably don't understand how passionate you are about the natural world and wildlife. 
you know, they don't care. Big, that, that's just a disconnect. That's like, uh, we, we've all, anybody that, that, unless you've been sleeping under a rock the last two years, we've all seen these Antifa types yeah. come out come out of the woodworks. Uh, and they're always masked. Yeah. They're, they're cowards. Yeah. They're cowards. And uh, you see these cowards. You know, I was coming in of all places in the world. I did not expect. I was coming in from South Africa back in August. And flight full of hunters most people on these flights are just been hunting or vacation or something over in africa we're coming to newark new jersey and um i meet this lady from nebraska uh that's a spear huntress she'd been in africa hunting with spears and i got to talking to her man she hunts deer and bear and all kinds of stuff with a spear not with archery with a spear i mean just golly, who does that you know so i having this great conversation about this time somebody walks up uh, this long haired guy, but he, he ain't got this like long hair. Like, like I think of long hair, you know, he, he got, got a permed long hair, yeah, yeah. Put a little work into it. It looks like, and uh, yeah. kind of dressed, kind of dressed casual, but chic, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, uh, and he's a low talker and, uh, and he said, and I'm, I'm, look, man, everybody, me and all my clients, we can't hear shit. We shoot shotguns for a living. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, you know, I, I'm, I hear stuff like, if I can't look at a man's lip, I have a hard time knowing what he's saying. Yeah. And uh, so this low talker comes up and he says something about biodiversity, something, something, something. And, and I, I go, what'd you say? And, and he, and he kind of turned around, you know, and I, I whooped out my phone. And, uh, and then I, I, and then I said, well, I'm, I'm, I must've misunderstood. I thought he was like an anti-hunter and you know, anti-hunters in this crowd. And he makes another pass. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, I had the same conversation we've just had very briefly with this guy. I mean, very two sentences worth and he wasn't going away and he was low talking and, and, uh, and I'd whooped out my phone and got a little bit of footage of him. But basically I just, I stared at the ground and I said, mister, you've got about, you've got about three Mississippi before I take off my belt and beat you. Yeah. And, uh, like your mom and daddy should have. Yeah. And he kept on and I undid my belt and started pulling it off. And that boy disappeared. I don't mean, I don't mean he walked away. I mean, she and I were looking. It's like he walked into the crowd, dropped his coat, put on a fresh cap and disappeared. You know, but boy, the minute the belt got ready to come off, yeah, take off running. He was gone. Yeah, you know, yeah. he was gone. And uh, so anyway, that you know, they're everywhere. You see them everywhere. They're, you know, I, I think they're they've infiltrated some of our government agencies. There are ports of entry. I'm thinking of Tijuana, Mexico, of all places. Yeah. Uh, they they there's a hard time importing legal legally harvested through that port of entry because. <laughs> person or persons unknown within that custom border patrol office have issues with hunting. You see it everywhere. So I, I try to, I try to kind of stray away from, from politics, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you I guess you're, you're an older fellow. You've been, been around a little bit. Have you, have you seen wildlife management and conservation here in North America? How significant has it, has it changed significantly through their, all the different administrations since you got into it? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'll say this, um, I think, I think that, that 
some of the foremost federal government agencies. Um, I, th I think that US, the history of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I'm not picking on them as an agency. I'm not painting with a broad brush. I know a lot of really the, the, the best foremost biologists in, in America are also hunters and work for that agency. But I think, you know, when I was there 20 years ago, there was a major transition. Uh, you know, a lot of the people that uh, started the duck banding and worked back in the day, at one point in time, let me put it this way, let me, at one point in time, most all of your biologists were hunters. They were what I call hook and bullet biologists. And I think there's been a major transition 20 years ago when I was working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a lot of the national and regional staff were not hunters. Yeah. Uh, they they were they were anti-hunters. Non-hunters. You can't get a wildlife degree in, in, in the U.S. and, and come out of it anti-hunting if you and, got and a you wildlife know, you're, you're seeing a trend in a lot of the wildlife programs now. Uh, when I was at Mississippi State University, a class of 60, most all of us were hunters and fishermen. Yeah. Now there's 350 in that same program uh, at that same university and 90% neither hunt nor fish. Yeah. And for those that stay the course and shake out or are able to get a job, they will become our future policymakers and they, they don't have a hunting and fishing background. And that's scary. Yeah. It's, it's very scary to me. So I, I do, I do think that uh, I don't think you have to be a hunter to be a great biologist. I'm not saying that. But, but I'm, I'm saying that, you know, when you look at the hunter input, you know, if you look at the pillars of, of, of the North American management plan or North American, North model, American, North American model, model, yeah. it does include hunters. Yeah. You know, the economy that we're talking about, that is the North American model is, is that economy. And uh, so you've got, let, let's look at the pillars of, of wildlife management in the United States. You've got uh, state and federal agencies, you've got universities uh, with the research leg, yep. and you've got hunters yeah. that, that are putting a bill for a lot of this stuff. And, and you know, how can you exclude that and, and, and really manage like it needs to be managed or like it has been managed successfully? Uh, so, so I really, uh, I, I do think there has been a trend, not just within the federal government agencies, but in the, I think without the U.S., there has been a trend towards uh, non-consumptive use backgrounds getting into policy-making roles, and that to me is scary for the future of hunting. So you think the the future of hunting in, in the U.S. is a uh, is 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 potentially negative? You know, like losing hunters. You think? Oh, we're losing hunters. I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at look at the, the data, the Fish and Wildlife Service data, uh, duck stamp sales and things of that nature, we're losing hunters. We're losing opportunities to hunt. You know, where, 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 where do you hunt anymore? Yeah. If you don't have the money to to buy land or buy into a club or lease property, what's well, public land? Well, more and more people are going on to public land. It's, it's a little. It's really not as much public land available in a lot of states down south for ducks as there are hunters yeah you know so it's it's a it's an interesting dilemma but but i think that uh i think that i tell you what i sure respect the opinion and the and uh 
and the biological acumen of hunters, no matter what patch they wear on their shoulder, than I do non-hunters. Yeah. I, I just really do. I think I think that you've got to the North American model is all about that that economy and and, and having hunters involved. I, I think that I think there's a dire outlook for hunting worldwide, um, and also in America. I think access is going to be one of the foremost problems we have. There's no denying in the last 20 years, uh, there's no denying when I look back the past 20 or 30 years, that there, we, we continue to lose habitat. There's a lot of major habitat issues. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, we've got to feed the world. It's, we, it's a tough, to, that's the complicated we've got to, part. We've got to put power uh, in, in a lot of homes. We, we've got to, uh, you know, but the landscape is changing and it's not all good. In fact, it's a lot of it's bad. Uh, for, for the future of waterfowl especially yeah well we've got we got great organizations like ducks unlimited the leader in wetlands conservation in north america hunter hunter led organization conserving lots of wetlands D ducks unlimited and delta waterfowl man i tell you what i'm i am so thankful for both of those organizations uh they've got the biological acumen they, they've got they've got the money they've got the they, they disseminate good information um and they lobby and they work hard and and they they're all about the future of, of waterfowl and wetlands and habitat and uh you know that alone puts the united states head and shoulders above nearly every other country i've ever set foot in yeah um j just having those two organizations right here champion waterfowl and waterfowl habitat that that's that's uh, i support them both i don't uh, to anybody listening that thinks you got to support one or the other, man, this is not SEC football. Support them both. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you you can be you can be a, a fan of both and a supporter of both, and you should be. And, you know, I like a lot of the movement that's going on right now. Uh, you know, within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, that 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 federal duck stamp, uh, man, it's unbelievable how much of something 90-something percent of the revenues generated by the federal duck stamp go into habitat yeah. conservation. And, uh, man, buy five of them, buy 10 of them, buy as many as you can. Buy yeah, more. it's a uh, you – know? man, uh, when, when you're talking about, uh, like, Ducks Unlimited doing all these all this wetlands conservation, it's not just for ducks either. It's all the non-game. You know, I, yeah, I was – Everything uh, benefits. Everything benefits. Yeah, right? I, was, I was working for – a. Texas A&M Natural Resource Institute at my last semester at A&M uh, earlier this year. And, and we were studying this turtle called a, a Western chicken turtle. And one of our sites were, was out in the Katy Prairie and, and we were, we were out in some natural potholes, but a lot of the sites where those turtles were spending time in were those moist soil wetlands that were created by Ducks Unlimited or, or in, out in the Piney Woods and at Alazon Wildlife Management Area, another similar ordeal where Ducks Unlimited had come in and, and created these more soil wetlands and, and these, these really rare turtles. Well, it turns out they're not so rare, but they're, uh, but anyway, they, they, they're using these, these ducks unlimited wetlands. And, and that's just one example of many, many wet, wetland obligate species that really benefit from, from the work of ducks unlimited. Yeah, no, you're right. You know, and it's really, uh, I am an older guy. I started off, uh, just as a young, young hunter. And um, that be it became a business, yeah. getducks.com. It is duck season somewhere. 
but as I got older, uh, our, our webpage, getducks.com, is, is substantial. In many ways, uh, it's kind of sort of a Wikipedia-like in, in, in the world of Google. It, it, it's very Wikipedia-like in terms of resources. It's over 2,000 Google index pages, uh, photographs, videos, podcast episodes. Uh, we're in the process of, of doing a lot in the back end uh, to, to, to even more and more and more content by leaps and bounds, uh, slowly but surely. But, but you know, it's, uh, as you get older, you work your whole life and, and, and getducks.com more than just a way to make a living, helping you find great hunts around the world. It, 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 it's such a huge part of my life. And, and I've seen a lot of changes. Forget the federal government agencies. That is what it is. People are people. But, but I've seen a lot of changes, you know, like on the Internet. Um, anytime I think of the Internet, I think of young people. I, th I think of uh, there's a lot of false narrative. You know, a lot of young people don't have dads or granddads like I did to, to mentor them along. You know, they're at the mercy of industry or personalities online. Social media, yeah social media and, and whatnot. Back in the day, it was chat rooms. And, you know, and you see this stuff, I, I see it still, you know, there'll be a guy, just imagine somebody you're comes across your feed and there's a picture of a duck, a brown duck. And it'll say, what kind of duck is this? And most of the responses will be something like, well, you should know what it was before you shot it or yada, 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 yada. Well, you know, that could be a 14-year-old kid yeah. that, that went out, didn't have a daddy to teach him what a hen gadwall was, a juvenile hatchier hen gadwall was. And they, they're, they're, they're interested in this resource. They're interested in this lifestyle of ours, and they just need a little help. And so on the one hand, social media can be, a, a, and I think is, a, a very powerful medium and platform for educating and getting people involved. But on the other hand, you know, why would that kid, if he gets his teeth kicked in yep. by too many know-it-alls, why would he come back? Why, why would he just go play video games or go do something else, you know? And, and I just, you know, I, I won't, I, I just, I just decided that uh, via our podcast, Duck Feeding Somewhere, which I think we meet with biologists, we meet with historians, we meet with, with regular people, we meet with just people all over the country, all over the world. I, I just think of it as, as kind of a uh, insightful and entertaining and informative perspective of duck hunting as a culture. It, 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 you, can, you can learn a lot through it. And then as an extension into our social media, uh, like our Instagram account is mostly where I'm, I'm active, uh, Ramsey Russell Get Ducks. Yep. You know, yep. I, I try to I try to, to to take the viewers and our followers along with me via the Instagram stories. Here's how we're hunting. Here's what we're doing. Here's the species we're killing. I try to use my biological background to explain what these species are, how to age in section. Like, you know, recently while we were in Canada, somebody had something very ugly to say, uh, can't repeat it, repeat it on a, on a public forum like this or won't, but, uh, not, not that I don't cuss, but, but I just ain't gonna say what you said, but yes. about us shooting all those hen pintails. Well, they weren't hen pintails. In fact, 80% of them were, were 
drapes, but they were brown because it was very early in September. And so I just did a little a little segment on how to age and sex brown pintails, yeah. male, female, hatch year, adult. I watched that and I learned a lot. I didn't know the the, the drakes looked so so drab, just like a, a just like a hen. Our birds molt, you know, they they molt twice a year here. Yep. And uh, so I've just tried to use uh, my experiences and and uh, my continued experiences and and my 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 life to just uh, educate people, show people. You know, it's like uh, back in the seventies, there was a uh, there was a, a, a movie called Oh God. I think that's the name of it. Oh God. And it had John Denver and, uh, uh, and a comedian named Burns. Burns was posing as God. And, you know, and God went to John Denver and said, you know, I got to get people thinking about me. People start to forget who I am and what I am. And, and he came up with this plan. He came up with this idea. He's going to get people to thank God. And, you know, silly movie long time ago, but, but I, I think about, uh, by showing people the duck hunting world and the duck hunting culture and exposing it to the species and the culture and the other parts of the world outside their backyard, maybe it gives them this, this more of a, a universal understanding of what hunting is all about and could yeah. be about. And that, that it is that the world truly is a lot bigger and better and more wonderful than just our backyard. Yeah. <laughs> the core, the core idea of it all is, is a, uh, you know, experiencing the outdoors in an immersive way and, and, and conserving natural resources. That's the core of yeah, it all. You know, it's, it is. It, you know, you've got to be making memories. But you know, it's like, uh, we have, we'll have hunters call us up, but and we got some nice places we stay in. They're all comfortable and nice, but perfectly in context, you know, and if we're at a remote wetland in Argentina that you can't hardly get to from here, that it's like going back to the 1800s, you can't hardly expect to stay in the Hilton. <laughs> You know, yeah. and you can go to all six continents in the world and book reservations at the Hilton, but whether you're in uh, Azerbaijan or Argentina or Australia, it's going to be the Hilton experience. I don't want the Hilton experience when I'm in Australia. I want the Australian experience. I want the exactly. Argentine experience. I want the Azerbaijan experience. Yeah. And I want to eat their food and, 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 and hear their stories and see their culture. And, 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 uh, along with shoot those birds that are indigenous to that part of the world. And, uh, and I think that's what a lot of our clients want, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's funny how in the last 20 years, you act about the changes I've seen, um, one change I can remember, and I don't know why, uh, I don't, you know, but I do know that, that when we first hung our shingle and got into business nearly 20 years ago, uh, a, a lot of the clients, some of their primary questions were, well, how many birds can I shoot? And now they'll ask that. Well, they'll eventually get around to asking what are the bag limits like or what, what can I expect to shoot? But that's not why they're going. They're going for that experience. They're going for, they're going, you know, we go to this place, Rio Salado down in Argentina. It, it's not like, it's, it's not just going duck hunting in a place it's almost like setting back in time to the mid 1800s. It's just very remote, vibrant, uh, fluctuating marsh, 130 square miles. It's big, low-lying spot in the world, slap full of ducks. 
That's awesome. And, uh, you know, it, it's a 12 hour drive out of Buenos Aires. The last 50 some odd kilometers are down a dirt road. Unless it's been raining, then you're locked into four wheel drive and hoping you don't slide off and get stuck. And you show up this, this little lodge and go off in the mornings by yourself with your guide and hunt ducks. And it, there's, there's a lot of rewarding to that. I've got vacation <laughs> hunts, you know, baiting is legal in a lot of parts of the world. And we've got some baited hunts down there, you know, and for guys that want to just go on vacation and trigger pull and shoot 50 ducks in the morning and 15 ducks in the afternoon, boom, we got that hunt down in Argentina too. And, um, and then, then you get off into some of these parts of the world, uh, like Australia or Mongolia or Pakistan or Peru. And it's just a full on different experience. You know, I like that. You've ever seen. I like how you, you kind of, uh, we're talking about Argentina. You said it's like the, going back to the 1800s, I, man, I fantasize North America in the 1800s. In fact, uh, just the other day I was, I was out in North Texas. Uh, I was working up there and I went out to Hagerman national wildlife refuge. And, uh, there's a big, big group of snow geese that hang out there every winter. And, uh, at one point they got up and they, they, they turned the sky black, you know, the, the sun was blocked out completely. And it, it reminded me of the, of the stories back in the day when the passenger pigeons and, and other birds were so abundant in North America, they, they turned the sky black and uh, kind of got me fired up, you know, and I was just really reminiscing. I wish I could have, I wish I could go back in time, but you don't actually have to go back in time. You can go to Argentina or you can go to uh, Mongolia or you can go to any of these other parts of the world that haven't been as industrialized as, as, uh, as you know, yeah, more, more under underdeveloped parts yeah. of the world. It, yeah. it, it, it get a feel for that, you know, but look, look at how, North America has changed since then. I mean, consider snow geese. They're more abundant back, now. Back in the mid-1800s, snow geese left uh, North Dakota and uh, Canada where they staged and they in, in natural wetlands and they overpad, overflew most of the Great Plains. They might stop and take a drink of water, but they overflew it. They went straight down to the Gulf Coastal marshes of Texas and Louisiana, and they wintered in the marsh and they were considered marsh birds and they're they weren't particularly desired uh because of a lack of palatability you know as some of the other birds and now all these years later they have left the marsh for rice and soybeans and become highly granivorous in these agricultural habitats and uh and probably better eating i i you know I laugh or, or I'm kind of saddened by people that consider snow geese to be sky carp or some other word where they're not good to eat. And I'm like, Oh, they're great to eat. I, I'll take them over. They're eating the same thing as those speckle bellies and everything else that they're, they're really good to eat. And, uh, when they're on the, on these grains, especially. And so, uh, you know, and I've, I've wondered a million times what it must've been like. I do. I will say this though. I hunt agriculture. I hunt, seabirds you know out in the oceans i hunt uh flooded timber habitats or shrub scrub all the different wetland types uh, I've been forced to hunt. but you know my my favorite habitat worldwide is emergent marsh a oh, lot yeah. of things we go are, are just natural that place in in, in uh argentina we call rio salado is an emergent marsh you know we go to azerbaijan we're hunting a, a kind of an ephemeral emergent marsh wetland uh that all looked like phragmites to me was that phragmites out there? there's a lot of phragmites out there unfortunately but uh but but still you know you've got submerged aquatics and and stuff like that out there and frag is a, is a real big problem uh and i doubt they'll ever pay close enough attention to get rid of it but 
but but other than just the phragmites we go through, you've also got you know, um, guys, alkali bulrush. Just, yeah. just uh, you're hunting just hundreds of acres of of alkali bulrush flats that that the teal and pintail and duck are coming in. Sounds into super neat. What, yep. What's the deal with Phragmites in uh, in the U.S.? It, it's still not clear to me if it's if it's native or naturalized. Uh, I believe it's naturalized. It's not a. It's not, it's a, not a native it's a, though. It's a terrible. It's great to hide in, but yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. So you're, but it, but it's uh, it's terrible to run dogs in to, to, to puncture their feet. It is highly invasive. It uh, it's not good. It has no wildlife benefit whatsoever. Yeah. And, and you know, out in Utah. A lot of their biologists I've worked with in the past, you know, do a real good job of controlling it and knocking it back, stuff like that. We hunt, I hunt a McFadden and Anahuac National Wildlife Refuge in Texas Point out there. And we'll, we'll find these uh, these patches of Phragmites in a Spartina marsh, and they're the perfect blind. You know, we hunt in public yeah. land. Just sometimes we'll even ram our boat up in there and hunt out of the boat. Sure. That's about all it's good for. Yeah, it's good, you know, good cover, but no I, no food value for ducks. <laughs> No, no, there's no, there's no, there's no food value, no value whatsoever, really, yeah. uh, to come out of. I, I think it's non, I think it's, I think it's non-indigenous. Yeah, I, I loved your conversation with, uh, I can't remember his name. That he runs a oyster, uh, oyster bayou hunting club in Chambers. Gene Campbell, Mr. Gene For me, Campbell. it was that was cool to listen to because I'm from the area, and he's talking about all the all the different wetland plants that ducks really like around there. Uh, all like the smart weeds and 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 the and the nausea's and uh, rice and all that good all stuff. That, yeah, sprinkle top. rice cut grass and I don't know how <laughs> you know for for hunting public people that hunt public land I don't know how important it is to ever know actually know plants really but if you're managing wetlands on 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 sites like like he has and you're in your on private well, I lands it, I think it's real important to know those because you know I think it okay yeah, I, it was a question. Yeah. If you're just showing up during duck season and yep. hope the best, but you ought to be out there in the growing season and find out in those marshes, find where duck potato is. You won't be able to see it during duck season, but the ducks will find it. And if yep. you know where it is and can set up near it, you'll you'll find those birds. You know, I think it's very important to know what plant community you have no management control over it on public land, but you're knowing where those resources are, you can bet the ducks are gonna come into it later in the year. That's good to know. I was I was going to ask you that how how important you think it is just for your average public land warrior. I think it's very important because you know knowing those food sources, the ducks are going to find it. Yeah. You know, I don't know how they find it, but they're going to find those duck potatoes, and uh, they're going they're going to find they're going to find that food. And you're knowing where it is and staying familiar with it, uh, and putting yourself, you know, when those ducks hit that resource, will, will, I think help your success. The big one for us in the on the upper Texas coast and the kind of the brackish marshes is the widgeon grass. Yeah, Stuff oh yeah, real thick and and it, it always seems to produce produce ducks if you can find the widgeon grass. But right, the, the salt marsh doesn't have great plant diversity though. It's a lot of Spartina, Alterna flora, and then then the submerged plant is the widgeon grass, and that's, and that's about right. it really. Right. You know. Right. But anyway. Yeah. Well, man, I've enjoyed being on here today. I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed it too. Uh, I really appreciate. It. I know you're real busy. You know, you're running all over the place. Ooh, I'm busy yeah. as can be right now. Right now, I've got to get my catalog finished uh, before I leave and tomorrow morning. Uh, we, we do a big catalog. We go to convention. This year's catalog is going to be 40 pages. So we had we had the first time in a few years we printed one. Last time we printed one was 2019, and. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm putting the finishing touches on it. And then tomorrow morning, around 8 o'clock, I'm going to point the truck towards Connecticut. Uh, I just got done. I, I left home in September and hunted, uh, till hunted Louisiana, Texas, crossed the border into Canada on uh, around the 25th of September, came back to uh, the United States in October 16th, ran throughout the, from the 16th through the 30th, was in North Dakota, and then uh, spent a couple of weeks in Montana, Wyoming, then went down to Wyoming, then went down to Colorado, picked up Kansas and came home for Thanksgiving, uh, just got back from Nevada, and now I'm heading to Connecticut, Connecticut, Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. And uh, I ended up with six swan tags this year, and that kind of put a put a uh, put a stick in my spokes on my initial plan to hunt. You know, I'm I'm about seven states away from hunting all the states, 49 states, and that you can duck hunt in. And uh, some of us gonna have to wait till next year. Yeah. You know? Well, it was great to snag you for about an hour. You know, I uh, really appreciate you coming on, and and I think people will find a lot of value in, in hearing what you have to say. So. Yeah, Andrew, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, and it was uh, really great to meet you and talk to you, you know, and I'll uh, be keeping up. I need one of those hats. I like that Get Ducks hat. You know, I like the old school camo on it. That's yeah. Cool. Well, you can go to uh, getducks.com front slash shop. Yeah. And uh, and uh, third party vendor uh, handles all of our apparel and uh, and I tell you this, this has been a real popular cap. It's, it's, it's sold out. I think, uh, do you got to pre-order them, but I think it's due for resupply and be shipped, start shipping them out orders sometime in, uh, mid January. Good to know. I'm going to go around today. I'll stop recording. Uh, thanks again, Mr. Russell. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Good to see you. Oh, you too. Have a go.